you. What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Excellent! Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. So now that we've wrapped up our extensive coverage of Final Crisis, the time has come to shift gears into another extended coverage series of episodes. This time, moving away from Cape Books and discussing a webcomic only the third that we've covered, I believe, after Homestuck. And then we did Karma and Love, but that kind of feels like an entirely different thing since that was still like big publisher driven and not like an actual indie thing. But this week we're going to be discussing the cult favorite uh, webcomic. I almost said Homestuck. We're going to be discussing the cult favorite webcomic Starfighter. Uh, by the creator Hamlet Machine. This ran for about 11 years with gaps in between of updating. I was like scouring interviews over the last couple weeks trying to get more information since, again, this not being a Marvel or DC book, it's a bit harder to find information about it since it's largely like going through old Twitter feeds and trying to find old interviews and googling starfighter can be a bit difficult considering that it gives me a bunch of military jets and or star wars shit and so you'll just get like a bunch of x-wings i the yeah the pages aren't dated or anything on the website which thinking about it is a little odd because like homestuck had dates on everything it's honestly been so long that I can't remember if the original website for Homestuck kept like the dates on it or if that was just like a thing the web archive did to just like sort of add easily referenceable information. But yeah, um, for anyone who's not familiar with it and are interested, this comic is available to read completely for free at starfightercomic.com. Before we fully jump in, um... Yeah, the historical context, I believe, from what I could find, the Hamlet Machine started this in late 2008. The first pages might not have actually been published until early 2009. Still trying to figure that out, but late 2008, early 2009, and the comic did not wrap up its run until early 2020. So it took about 11 years and you had never heard of it before last week, right? No. Okay. Never heard of it. Yeah, it's pretty famous in webcomic circles, or at least certainly in webcomic circles frequented by people who like gay shit. It is an erotic sci-fi romance. I did not follow the whole thing from like start to finish, but I did read it at various points like before it wrapped up 
I think I like discovered it at one point, read what had come out to that point, and then like came back to it once or twice before it finished. I think I more or less like read the ending as it was happening. And as I've said before, creator is Hamlet Machine. I'm going to be reading from the physical print editions that I have. They're basically the same as the site, except they just have a few extras in the back. But the main creator is Hamlet Machine, and she also credits some additional support to Fisby for additional story help and to Onorobo for additional coloring help on chapters two through four, and then M. Nick for additional coloring help in chapter five. Today, we're going to be discussing the first two, maybe three chapters. We're prepared to do the first three, but depending on the pace that we set and how long we go since. Yeah. This one was a bit hard for me to... Well, it's five chapters. There's no, like, easy even number to cut in half for a two-parter. Yeah, exactly. It's five chapters, and because it's so different from a lot of what we usually cover, I wasn't really sure what the pace of our conversation would be like. So the It plan... reads like a manga to me in pacing. Yeah, it's pretty fast-paced. Like, it's not decompressed in a bad way, you know? Like, it's not... Like, oh, I read a Brian Michael Bendis comic and now I feel like I wasted my money, but <laughs> it's pretty fast. It's not super dense. It's in many ways, I think, a bit of a departure from Final Crisis. Yeah, I, I don't know that the entirety of Starfighter has as many wards in it as a single issue of Final Crisis does, actually. Probably not. Not as many characters either. Or possibly even plot points <laughs> yeah but there is still stuff going on that i am excited to talk about we'll go through semi more or less in order of the story although we may go on like tangents about like thematic things and such you know and may like skip around a little bit but for the beginning at least we're gonna start off with chapter one which the opening page depicts uh, two young men in an office of a military commander who is not named here at this early point, but I'll go ahead and say this is Commander Baring. He's one of two main commanders in this military fleet that we're going to see. In terms of referencing information ahead of time, I'm going to do my best not to do anything that's like a legitimate spoiler, but I might like name drop a character before they're actually named if it's just, you know, easier to refer to them that way. But anyway, we're in Commander Baring's office and there's two young men standing before him and the dialogue reads, I'm assigning you both to a fighter and navigator team. Your task names are Kane and Abel. The way that it's sequenced out is that there's like one panel with the text box Kane giving a close up on his face, and then the same with Abel right afterward. Kane. They're very heavily visually themed, these characters. Oh, yeah. And it extends like not just to these two, but also to the sort of system of how this military, this sci-fi military works 
where Kane is what's called a fighter and Abel is what is called a navigator. And essentially the way that this fleet works is that there's two people assigned to every ship, every like battleship. And there's the navigator who sort of does the zooming around of actually piloting it. And then the fighter is more of the weapons or attack expert. Yeah, exactly. The gunner. And in most cases, you're going to see fighters wearing exclusively black clothing and navigators usually wearing white clothing. So it's about all the fighters have black hair and all the navigators have white hair. And like, yeah, uh, this is it's not a black and white comic, but there's a very limited color palette palette. Oh, my God. Most of the comic is just black and white, but like Kane has sort of some blue streaks on the front of his hair and Abel has the like a sort of neon greeny yellow color streaks. And there's like a few other splashes of color, if I remember correctly, but like not much. Yeah, it is very much like a primarily shades of white, black and gray color palette where it's notable when you get pops of color as we discuss the comic i think we'll be able to see hamlet machine's artistic style evolve a lot because like i said this comic came out over a course of about a decade and looking at the art from chapter one versus chapter five there's an enormous evolution in the artistic style used and developed i think that their highlights are more noticeable early on frankly i think that they get sort of like a little less extreme as the comic progresses but here in the early first chapter or two it is like a very like electric shock of like lime green little highlight going on in abel's hair i think it's very useful given the fact that we have a cast of characters, all of whom are wearing, like, one of two outfits alongside one of two hair colors. Yeah, that's a fair point. So I really like that we had these on the at the very least the main two, the most important to pick out in any situation. Yeah. I think as the comic progresses, we'll see a bit more of, like, evolved differentiation and that, like, I think Hamlet Machine sort of Grows as an artist in many ways, but over time sort of like figures out how to differentiate the characters' faces and give them more unique features. But here in the first chapter or two, yeah, like you said, I think the highlights are a major point in favor of helping us keep track of, oh, that's Abel, as opposed to any of the other navigators on the ship. And... It's not really gotten into specifically a lot here at the very beginning with regards to like all of the navigators looking the same and all of the fighters looking the same. But I will say that there is a bit of a conscious thing going on with like where these people are coming from in terms of class and race that we'll get a bit more into in the latter half of the comic. But 
that makes sense because there's definitely like some stuff in the first three chapters where i'm like there's something else going on here but it's not been fully outlined exactly you don't accidentally yeah. wind up with this recruitment pool um on the subject of the strategies that these people who are recruiting them have the idea of naming a team Kane and Abel seems completely insane to me as like a choice of code names for two people who are supposed to be helping each other survive picking maybe the most like here are two brothers but one of them is going to kill the other name of of all time yeah that's fair <laughs> it's it's it very odd it's it's like having wolf and lamb as as one of your teams now i want to see a comic about a duo named that yeah or um i yeah it just seems like the, the they live in the same room like clearly there's supposed to be a bond between each fighter and navigator even if the rest of the time the fighters and the navigators are pretty segregated they both have their own chains of command the intention is within the ships that they that those two specifically have a tight bond to foster cooperation and working together piloting the ship and it seems strange to me to give them names that are i, I mean intentionally antagonistic yeah it does immediately characterize them because you look at kane and you say kane and when you look at abel you say abel and you're like okay well that's the murdery one <laughs> and this is like but the, the more quote-unquote gentle kinder one yeah so i and... get its use within the comic but it's used within like a military structure i'm like what on earth are you guys doing fair enough yeah in one of the interviews that i mentioned looking through trying to research um there were two interviews from way back in 2010 on deviant art um of someone's username uh stargazer Austrina interviewing hamlet machine and she specifically asks about the character names and um she asked how did you come up with character designs and pick the names kane and abel to which hamlet machine said and i'll just quote part of it i am much more comfortable of choosing a pre-existing name that sets some kind of tone for the personalities when I was thinking of a couple that had a conflicting relationship, Cain and Abel came to mind. They are names from the Bible, but their titles are task names and have no special religious meaning. So it's basically, yeah, like setting up that initial tone that we've talked about. I do get your point, like in universe of, yeah, I suppose that is a weird choice for the military to do, to choose an intentionally antagonistic set of pairs or like reference uh antagonistic pair for the naming scheme but yeah it sort of sets the tone um these are task names this is not either character's real name i think in what i had you read today i don't think they've said their real names yet um so for now i'll refer to them only as cain and abel it's not stated explicitly, but I think at the point when the comic is beginning from the context clues, I think that Kane has already been around in service, like on the ship as a fighter 
well, this part's explicit, like we know he has. Um, so Kane's already been around and been known as Kane. So he already sort of has the task name. Yeah. But when the other one, when the lots of other is, people know him. Yeah, exactly. When the blonde is assigned to him, my impression is that that is when he is assigned the name Abel. And in my impression is that this is like the beginning of Abel's service because there's no reference ever made to him ever having had like prior fighters. And it all makes him seem like a very new person to the ship and like active duty. Yeah, uh, again, agreed. He um, at several points is like very clear that he's not at the very least served on this ship or with anybody else in this crew before. Yeah. Like, it's clear that he's done some sort of, like, special training, like he's done He knows what he's doing, yeah. Yeah, like the preliminary training and stuff, but the impression is that he's brand new on this ship. And he has the bad luck of being assigned as the navigator partner to the fighter Kane, who, even in page one, there's sort of corresponding intro panels... We see Abel looking kind of, it's kind of a subtle expression, honestly. It looks like kind of disturbed and worried in a way, whereas Kane is smiling in a way where sadistic might be too strong of a ward, but there's very clearly a major personality difference here. I like the names, like, you know, your points, a valid point of that's a weird military decision. But I do. It makes sense to do it for the comic. I was just also like, wow, what a dumb military. Yeah. Well, this is. Which I definitely think carries forward from what I've read. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk more about like the military structure as we go. The whole Um, structure is so stupid. In terms of like as a comic and world building, I think it's really cool. But like in real life, this would not be a good way to structure it. But I think it's very cool in the comic. But, um, yeah, I like the names. It sort of just instantly gives you a sense of where things are going to go. And I like biblical references sprinkled into gay shit a lot of the time. So all in all, it's checking multiple boxes for me. And essentially, Cain and Abel get assigned to each other. We then watch them make their way to... I guess, what do you call it in a military sense? Like on a, on the spaceship, on the military spaceship, their dorm room, their bunk. shared room. Yeah, their bunk. They have a small room. Yeah. And once they get there and they close the door, Kane's first words to Abel are, you're my bitch now, which understandably takes Abel aback. Um... Kane's just like, you heard me. And he leans in for what would seemingly be a kiss, but he bites Abel on the mouth severely enough to leave a scar, which is going to remain throughout most of the comic, at least certainly these opening chapters. Bit this bitch very badly and says, that's not a bite, that's a scar. Everyone will know you belong to me now. Um, Abel understandably tells Kane that he is psychotic and he doesn't want to navigate for, quote, a depraved animal like you. And Kane says, 
They told us that navigators were different. Intelligent, but still weak. They said we should be nice because we need you. I'm being nice, Abel, but I've been known to be mean. And so, yeah, the Cain and Abel of it all is starting right out the get-go of here is a pair that has been put together in military service, meant to be serving together as a unit of two, and rather than an equal footing, immediately kind relationship, we essentially have Kane taking the approach of viewing his navigator in sort of a possessive way, and we'll see more details on this and group dynamics as we move on. But before things can progress much further than that, there is a red alert for an incoming attack. All military personnel report to launch dock. And so we then shift into getting our first shots, really, of Hamlet Machine depicting outer space and all of these actual, like, spaceships of the enemy ships and the ships that our characters are going to be piloting. And the attackers aren't named here yet, but they're presumably the Colterans because the Colterans are the only alien threat that's ever name-dropped in the comic. So presumably this would also just be the Colterans. I'll go ahead and say just in case I like, you know, just for clarity's sake. The Colterans being an alien threat. And I guess I'm curious, you as a sci-fi fan... What do you think of all of the space stuff from, like, the space itself to the ships and all of that? I think it's pretty neat. I, I, um, For me, what stood out the most about this sequence is actually the use of the red alert, like, incoming attack text throughout the page where everyone is rushing to um go and actually start manning the ships. Like, I thought that was a pretty, like, cool depiction in comic form of, like, that sort of scene where the alarms start blurring especially since you can't like make everything go red or something like that in the visual style that this comic's using um which is kind of what you'd normally wind up doing in this so yeah that was pretty cool the um we never really get i think a clear enough shot of like the ships for me to comment on the design but like the sci-fi stuff that we do see is kind of sort of star warsy in the like terms of it being quite geometric like, it feels very original trilogy Star Wars, which is definitely a compliment, you know? But also, like, I don't haven't really seen enough of it to have strong opinions on the, the stylization of these. Maybe there's more stuff in the last two chapters. But we're normally getting, like, shots in the cockpit of the characters. I mean, in this first action sequence, we don't even really see the enemy ships that clearly. Yeah. Or possibly even at all, really, we just sort of see explosions and them on the radar. Yeah, I think any view is really, like, sort of very small in the distance at a couple points, but that's about it. I'll echo what you said about the red alert. Like, it uses, like, a nice bold font. It is well contrasted from the usual lettering, I think. It does a good job of sort of selling like the thought of like a loud like siren type of alert noise without 
actually being able to use noise since this is a comic. So I like that too. I also like the sort of starkness of the black of space in these panels against like the white of like just like the background of the pages and various other parts of the action. I overall like the contrast and just like how the whites and the grays and blacks and everything are being used compositionally as they are preparing to take flight and take part in the, I suppose, like defensive slash offensive maneuver because they were attacked first, but also they're just going to blow up the Colterans in retaliation. So it's both really, but as they're preparing to launch, um, Abel is telling himself, I'm not going to die tonight. Not for that jerk. Meanwhile, Kane says to him, I've always been the best. If you slow me down, don't think I won't leave you behind. But if you can keep up, I'll show you something nice. And Abel is understandably just in a really like conflicted and confused emotional space right now. They've literally just met like 10 minutes ago, been assigned to each other. And now they're already on their first mission together. Not even training. They have never done a training exercise together. This is their first time as a pair, and it's in real combat. And yeah, we get the action scene. We get lots of, you know, just like space artillery shooting rounds off into space and into the alien ships. References to like anti-gravity guns, things like that. And during the mission, as we sort of see Central Command from the human side talking to the fleet we learned that another ship called the tiberius is more or less dead in the water the navigator to that ship is dead leaving just the fighter who's unable to you know fully navigate it properly is not trained to the same extent that the navigator would be obviously and abel who i'll go ahead and mention now before I forget, Abel and Kane fly a ship called the Reliance, and he like patches over through the intercom. Tiberius, this is the Reliance. We're coming to get you. Kane protests, doesn't want any part of it, but Abel is willing to make the risk. And long story short, they help take down Colteran ships before they can finish taking out the Tiberius. And so both the Reliance and the Tiberius are able to then make it out of the blast zone before the humans finish taking out the main ship from the enemy Colteran fleet and the rest of the Colterans just sort of retreat. And so the combat for now is over. And I like the big space explosion the Antimanta does. Yeah, it's a nice. It looks neat. Yeah, just sort of a nice little classic like sci-fi series of panels of like watching the ship start to explode. And then you get just like that sort of like fanning out of destruction. It's pretty nice. I also like just like the screens in general as they're piloting and fighting. And there's literally Arabesh on one of the screens. (laughs) Is that a Star Wars reference? I'm not sure what that is. That's the language that's on all the signs in Star Wars. Yeah, instead of English, it's it's Arabesh. 
it's just a one for one cipher with just some symbols. You could probably translate that, and I imagine it would say something. But um, yeah, nice. Yeah, Hamlet Machine is a Star Wars fan. I like a bunch of the shots as well here of just like specifically Abel's face as he's piloting just sort of the emotion that Hamlet Machine captures. I think that the art will get better as the comic progresses. Um, I don't think it's bad at the start, but it does feel comparatively rougher. Like I think that it feels a bit sketchier in places. Some of the line work isn't as polished as it's going to become, but there's still like moments that shine through of like, just some nice shots of like Abel's expression and just like his tiredness, but perseverance, things like that. Um, Along with various other specific things, like we've mentioned the explosion and yeah, they succeed. They save the Tiberius. They get the order on the intercom for everyone to return to base and dock immediately for ship repairs. And I suppose I should go ahead and clarify for people who have not read it and don't know just by hearing us talk about it. um, The sort of layout of these ships, the navigator and the fighter are not like sitting next to each other. They're both sort of like facing opposite ways. Like they have to like look over their shoulder to look back at the other and see what they're doing. And so at the end, Once the mission is a success, before they make it back to the ship, um, Abel hears something from behind him and looks back and it's just like Cain and is shocked to find that Cain is just jacking off in the seat. There's a shot of his sperm just coated across one of the sci-fi little screens and Abel is understandably shocked and delayed in replying to the orders over the intercom and like it the scene ends of him being like yes sir we're, we're on our way from there we transition to shortly after they are in the bunk room abel is lying down clearly distraught from just like the intensity of the day he's still in his uniform from piloting um, His weird shiny black leather uniform that apparently has a strap that allows you to undo the bit in front of your penis and only that bit. Yes, the military... It's very gimp suity. It is very gimp suity, yeah. The military apparel that is also very conveniently designed for sex. Because it is in fact designed for sex. Um, The material... It's like, yeah, like it might be lever. It also sort of gives kind of like a vinyl appearance in the way that the shading is done, which yeah, ob- really shiny black. Yeah, with just like hard white and light gray bits of lines to denote like the light hitting it in spots. And it looks really cool. I have to imagine it probably wouldn't be the best thing for using in a real military setting at least not the most comfortable but that doesn't matter because it's a comic and it just has to look cool and i think it looks very superhero comics are you kidding me yeah like i love (laughs) the way it looks like the gimp suity aesthetic i'm into it here it's just very cool gives 
an opportunity for Hamlet Machine to use shading in a way that sort of adds a nice texture to things that some of the other aspects of the first chapter or two don't have as much of yet. And Kane comes out from the shower and starts giving Abel a hard time, specifically cites the fact that he told Abel not to go back and help the Tiberius, but he did it anyway. And he says, let's get one thing straight. You do what I tell you to. You need to learn your place. Abel fights back, attempts to punch him, says, I do not take orders from you, and you're nothing but a monster. To which Cain laughs and says, Heh, you've got some fight left in you. That's good. Abel continues to just be thrown off by the way that Cain is behaving and talking, because why wouldn't he be? And he asks, You think this is all a joke? You really get off on death and destruction? And Kane continuing to be just like self-assured and like, God, I'm trying to even think of the right adjectives here. It's like abrasive, but not screaming. It's sort of like a hateful attitude. Yeah, insulting, but like calm and collected at the same time of him going, I thought navigators were supposed to be smarts. It's the survival to be alive, to experience both pain and pleasure, a phrase which then segues us into our first full-on sex scene of the comic, and which sort of immediately highlights the sort of philosophy and type of sex that we're going to see frequently throughout Starfighter in terms of both pain and pleasure with uh, Kane bringing his finger up against Abel's mouth. The panel specifically zooms in to give a shot of the scar that Kane gave him by biting him earlier on. And like a few hours ago, and it's already not sliced open somehow. Yeah. And he tells Abel that he is going to fuck him. He pulls him in for a kiss, which Abel pretty quickly starts just kissing back you know it's a sex scene i'm not going to go panel by panel but just you know there's groping of the ass there's um unzipping clothing you know as they're getting undressed we get the first instance of kane referring to abel as princess saying relax princess abel says you're still a bastard kane And it's the epitome of hate fuck, really. Like, this is not making love at all. I mean, it's been pretty clear since the beginning of the comic that Abel's been, like, really horny for Kane, despite Kane being awful. Yeah. I will say, this is better than Void, but worse than Fangs, is where I'm placing it as the first three chapters. In terms of, like, health of the relationship? Yeah, and me just, like, raising my eyebrows. Admittedly, it would be hard to be worse than Void. Yeah, which, like, with this... Well, the thing with Void is, like, that the dynamic of the relationship, the presentation, and the actuality feel sort of at odds. You know, where it's kind of like, oh, in Void, it's clearly so immoral, but it's not entirely presented that way and tries to do, like, a happy ending 
versus I don't think this is at all trying to depict like I don't think this is interested in simply depicting two normal well-adjusted people having a completely healthy relationship you know like it's very much like the offer is aware of what they're doing yeah no I I fully agree this is on purpose the dynamic is fucked yeah and though he's clearly interested Abel is also inexperienced both sexually and generally and in terms of like getting together with his teammates and he starts going I'm a navigator you're a fighter if the commander's new and Kane's just kind of like oh come on and then goes wait have you never done this before which these uh lines of dialogue sort of pack a lot of implication to them where we both learn that Officially speaking, this type of relationship probably isn't particularly well viewed within the service. You know, it may or may not be explicitly banned, but it's clearly something that like command supposedly doesn't view favorably. And yet it's absolutely rampant. Exactly. Yeah, because it's like common enough that Kane is like, wait, really? You know? Um, well, later in the comic, almost every like set of characters we meet have the vibe that they have at least fucked some of their partners. Yeah, or want to. Like, certainly, I can't remember his name, but the other like main uh, navigator that we see, um, the one with like the rounder face, the one who gets and... assigned to like the Tiberius fighter who survived. Yeah, yeah, with the longer hair. Yeah, um, and then just like the general vibes off of most of the other characters that we just sort of see in the way that they're interacting like yeah i'd say like like half of these people are doing this yeah well maybe not this but stuff yeah half of these people are doing stuff which you know this is an erotica comic so part of the draw is that people are going to be doing stuff um it reads believably to me you know like It doesn't read like literally everyone is doing it, but it makes sense within context with these individual characters of just like, yeah, yeah, they're getting into it in terms of just like a natural human horniness and B, these are people who spend so much time together that like forming bonds is pretty natural. Um, It's very Sparta. Yeah. In terms of, like, sexuality and such, this isn't the sort of comic where, like, characters turn to the camera or the reader and go, I am gay, or I am bisexual. But it's also not just, like, situational homosexuality. Like, it's clear that at least in some cases, you know, that, like, characters just, like, are gay. Um, Abel's gay. Yeah. Which, like, we'll get more into it, like, once we get to, like, more explicit talking about it. But it's, like, it becomes clear that homophobia is not a thing of the past in this sci-fi future. Which is something that I appreciate. Because, you know, like, one thing that people will sometimes talk about in sci-fi stuff 
or just like talk of like the future is people being like, oh, well, they're from an entirely different context, an entirely different time. You know, like the idea of being gay might just not mean anything to them. And like that would be fine in some stories, you know, but also there's not a lot of things that are more historically resilient than the presence of homophobia, you know, like for all intents and yeah. purposes, a concept that has been around and effectively been in force for longer than the concept of homosexuality itself, you know, with just the way that same sex contact and relationships of various kinds have been viewed. Um, so I appreciate when like a future society type of story doesn't just sort of do the lazy way out of like, oh, we're all okay with it now, because I do not trust straight people's ability to ever be completely okay with it. And this just feels more <laughs> realistic to me. But anyway, Cain and Abel start fucking. Um, we get a little bit of Abel's like interior thoughts of just like the sexual conduct he had wanted to do of men, but been unable to. Um, he specifically has lines going, but there was nothing I could do. No one I could trust. It was just the secret I kept inside me. It could have stayed there forever, but then he came and ripped it out of me. He meaning Abel in this case. And these lines Kane. just, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, meaning Kane. Um, all this just sort of getting at what I was just talking about of just like the pressure of homophobia on Abel, who just is gay. And they have sex. Like if you're someone who is into gay erotica, you know, depending on your style and your taste, you may get into it on a sexual level. Even if not, I think it's just well done in terms of like the character writing. Like I think it's a well-written scene and sort of just displaying this dynamic between the characters who are both very sexually into each other, even if they don't really fully respect each other at this point in the story. To include Abel, once the act is done, going to the bathroom and like looking at his reflection in the mirror for a minute and going, calm down, just calm down. You knew what you were getting into. After cleaning himself up a bit, he leaves the bathroom, goes back to Kane. He lays down, nestles his head on Kane's chest, and they sort of like lean into each other in a sort of like more intimate way than their previous actions. Abel says, no biting next time. Kane just sort of smiles. And we then get a cut sometime later to Kane having left the room and reporting to Commander Baring, the commander who assumedly is the one from the first page who assigned them their task names and their status just like as a navigator fighter pair and bearing asks kane well were you successful and kane says yes sir i certainly was and that is where the opening chapter of starfighter concludes and i guess up through this point i'll go ahead and just ask you what do you think of how the comic sort of establishes its characters and dynamics and do you have any thoughts or anything to touch on of chapter one 
mostly that I appreciate that Abel does, like, stand, like, this is just because you had me read Void last year that I'm like, you know, it's really nice that at times Abel actually feels the need to stand up for himself in this domineering relationship and, like, clearly has a some agency in it, even though it is also, like, a big eyebrow raise and the power dynamics are, like, really messed up, but also, like, at least he's got... Yeah, I like Abel. Yeah, I do too. I don't anticipate ever making you read something that is just like Void again in terms of those character dynamics. Um, I think the main thing that interested me about that manga was just like a lot of the conceptual stuff of the whole like sex android thing, you know. Yeah. Um, But yeah. fortunately for you... I might make you read something like this where like there's flawed people in unhealthy relationships, but I don't think that I'm particularly likely to make you read a straight up void again, <laughs> which I assume will be a relief. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I knew that already anyway. Yeah. But moving. I into... kind of knew what to expect from this book. The moment I realized the main characters names were Cain and Abel. Yeah, it's a little bit of a hint, maybe. Um, But anywho, we're going to go ahead and transition into chapter two of Starfighter. Here throughout, I think we're already going to start seeing a little bit of the artistic progression in Hamlet Machine's work. I think some of the line work is a little bit less rough. I think she's slowly feeling her way in the direction more of her current style. But we open up with what is a dream that Abel is having, but it also is like half flashback because it's sort of him dreaming about memories from back on Earth and then having like his current self superimposed watching them and then Kane from the present appearing within the dream. And the opening page we get these visuals of like super high buildings, like tall sci-fi skyscrapers where the only images of trees or greenery are all like confined greenhouse style, like atop of these buildings. They're all very like contained and it's just sort of like an interesting visual note for me. Like the narration doesn't really comment on it but it is sort of giving like human technology and architecture sort of progressed beyond nature, like not living in harmony with it, but only sort of having it in very contained circumstances. But anyway, more plot relevantly, uh, Abel looks down at a memory of him with his family, most notably his father, and they're having an argument. Kane is saying, or Abel is saying, rather, Abel is saying, I'm the best in my class. And and his father interrupts him. I don't care if you're the best on Earth. You're not joining the Alliance. He shouts, Ethan, which is our first time learning that Abel's real name is Ethan. And he continues, Dying in a territory war is for low-life colonists. You're my son, and I forbid any further discussion of this. At which point, 
Kane appears within the dream and it's just like nice house, your dad rich or something. And Abel tells Dream Kane and the reader that his father is a politician who wanted Abel to follow in his footsteps. But Abel, quote, wanted something different. I wanted to be myself on my own. I wanted to be a navigator. And Kane sort of comes up behind him, stands intimately close, and asks, was that the only reason? A nice, rich, pretty boy like you, wasn't there something else that you wanted? Which then transitions into... A sex dream. Yeah, a sex dream where they're starting to get hot and heavy, but Kane once again ferociously bites Abel's lip and is generally hurting him, resulting in Abel slapping the shit out of him, asking, what the hell is wrong with you? Why do you have to ruin everything? Can't you ever act like a decent person? And at this point, we slowly get more of a reddish brown encroaching in in the background, adding a much brighter contrast to the muted color palette that we talked about in chapter one. This is a lot bolder than what we've seen so far as the red intensifies and sort of like a character theme color for Kane. And in the dream, Abel suddenly finds that like the wall has disappeared from behind him. Uh, Kane is now holding him over at the edge and tells him, if you wanted a decent person, maybe you should have slept with one and then flings Abel off of the ledge toward, you know, dream doom. And it's at that point that Abel wakes up in his bed and finds that Kane is not there and he's alone in bed. And this opening scene does a lot. It gives us, A, his literal name. We haven't gotten a real name before, so Abel's name is Ethan. But more importantly than that, we get the family dynamic with Ethan being at odds with his father in terms of what he wants to do. It's clear that him joining the Alliance, um, I don't think ever stated explicitly when we discussed chapter one earlier, but basically like the military is referred to throughout as the Federated Alliance or more often just the Alliance. And this is a point of contention. It's also clear that sexuality is another sort of point of contention although we don't get like an actual no son of mine can be gay seen at this point you know we just get the vibe the implication yeah and then of course Kane also encroaching upon the dream as Abel is just like processing where he is now and the fact that he's like been able to act on his sexuality in a way that he never felt like he was able to do safely before, except now calling it like doing it safely wouldn't even be exactly the proper way to put it because it's not like a super trusting, healthy relationship, but a much more complicated and abrasive, violent one. Um, Any thoughts on this scene or like the color shift? I think the art's really taking a step up for the dream sequence. 
like it was good in the first chapter but there's like an immediate shift especially once you bring in the uh, additional color added into the palette and the way that the characters are lit underneath um by the red because there's like the the sort of red space of the precipice it looks like it 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 might like it's kind of irrelevant what it is but it's kind of like in lava because it's a big glowing like red with like some lines running through it yeah i think i think the art's great i think it's a very good dream sequence in that it does give us like a lot of abel's interiority and tells us a lot about the character like it's a very good usage of the dream sequence i'm glad you liked it i'm glad you're finding at least some things to like here i was not really sure how you would feel about this comic at all oh it's fine i just uh i just like tap quickly through the sex scenes just reading all the dialogue balloons because yeah (laughs) yeah it is simply literally not for you those are penises cool yeah but yeah it's giving lava it's giving anakin when he gets his ass beat at the end of the third prequel movie and that like fiery whatever the hell place they were at mustafar mustafar yeah but anywho, um, as he wakes up, uh, Abel hears more of the sort of intercom instructions that the command use, informing the navigators to report to Commander Cook, um, not Commander Baring from last time. Commander Cook is going to be a different character. He's going to be the second of the main two authority figures that we talk about throughout the comic. Yeah, because from what I can see of the structure, the navigators and the fighters have entirely different command structures that they report to. By and large, yeah. It's such an odd... <laughs> I would never do that if I was setting up, like, a military command structure, but, um... Like, I'm... It's... It, it's In the context of a story, it's fine, but also just, like, looking at this military, I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you idiots? Yeah. Um... As he makes his way there... Abel. You miss the fact that he masturbates in the shower because he's so horny from that dream still. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. We can note that if you want. I I feel like it's important that, like, he has this dream where his new partner throws him into, like, a lava river type thing, but he's still, like, worked up enough that he's got to do something about it. Yeah. And I guess, to be fair listeners as i progress through the plot there is always the chance that i have more or less gleaned over someone jacking off or having sex or something in the interim (laughs) but yeah he jerks off starts to make his way to the commander we get a little bit of his interiority again just sort of uh repeating the theme set up by the dream of i wanted to sleep with someone so badly I don't even know if I can trust him. And I'll go ahead and take this moment just to talk a little bit about the narration and or lack thereof. Um, The comic never has like an omniscient third person narrator. You know, there's no angry Claremontian narrator. All the information and exposition is just sort of given to us as we need it. You know, like it never really beats you over the head with a lot of information at once. And we get like some interiority of like Abel's own thoughts. 
but even that is relatively limited and not a large amount of it. Like a lot of the focus is more just a dialogue within the structure of actual characters having conversations. And I like it, you know, like I like when a sci-fi or fantasy story just sort of gives you what you need as you need it. But yeah, it's just a stylistic thing I'm into. But anyway, as he's making his way to the commander, there are a couple other navigators who show up. These are Porphos and Phobos. And they're dicks. They're dicks. They're just sort of having like a sharing the elevator scene where they're just dicks. They're like, that was some stunt you pulled yesterday, saving the Tiberius. If you wanted to suck the commander's dick so bad, you could have just asked. Uh, Abel's just like, you should be ashamed of yourself for not trying to help. And one of the others goes, what? And risk my ship for some low-life fighter? No thanks. They're nothing but a pack of wild dogs. And this is important again and just sort of really giving a glimpse of a prevalent attitude that a lot of the navigators have towards the fighters. Because even though everyone is set up in a paired situation, you know, where they presumably need to train and fight with the suffer person. They live with the suffer person. You know, like this is an integral relationship to the success of missions. There's also just something going on that, again, this doesn't get super into it yet, but it's clear that there's something going on like class-wise, prestige-wise, where a lot of the navigators just sort of feel much more hoity-toity and literally think of their partners as being beneath them, specifically wild dogs. And we'll get more into that sort of uh, situation of like where the characters are literally coming from before the service as we progress later in the comic. There's also the very obvious like physical differences. Like most of the navigators are shorter than the fighters all the navigators have the blonde hair and all the fighters have dark hair like it they're they're all white like everyone i think in this comic that i've seen is white the vast majority are yeah yeah but it feels racialized because it's just like here is this swath of people who have a specific set of features well actually no no, hang on. No, wait, isn't there a line later where Kane is referred to as being um, a word I'm not going to say that means Romani? Yes. Um. Yeah, we can go ahead and talk about Um. there's that. Right, and Kane will also specifically occasionally throughout the comic, Kane will use Russian words. So the implication being that Kane and probably a lot of the other fighters either, like, are Russian or at least, like, of some specific ethnic background where, like, Russian is a common language to use. And none of the navigators, I don't think, ever speak Russian at any point. Oh, and on the subject of names, Phobos is uh, a moon of Mars, but it's also named after 
the Roman god of fear, who was the son of Mars. So, well, sorry, the Greek god of fear, who's the son of Ares, but Ares is Mars, which is why it's one of the moons. And Porphos is one of the three musketeers, apparently. Yeah, I'm Googling the names when I don't know them off the top of my head. I knew Phobos, but not Porphos. I appreciate it. Um, I don't have any significance from that, but I'd be interested in seeing who their pairs are and what their names are. Yeah, we'll get a little bit more of their pairs later. The naming from like the pairs and the task names to the ships is just sort of giving like, what did Hamlet Machine think was cool, you know? Um, as they're being uh, dicks to him in the elevator, the other navigators tell Abel that he is Kane's third navigator in as many months. And, quote, if you ask me, you're not going to be his last, which makes Abel start wondering what happened to the other navigators. There's like a sort of series of panels depicting like his imagination as he pictures possible fates of did they demand a new partner because of his behavior? Did they let him do whatever they wanted? Were they lovers or did they die? And in a moment of just sort of like showing his ability to stick up for himself as he's getting out of the elevator, he tells the others, if you navigated as well as you gossiped, maybe you wouldn't keep getting reassigned. And he specifically says that Kane is the best fighter in the fleet and he's been assigned to me. So it's sort of a run your mouths. I'm better than you. And my actual military status shows that sort of moment. Yeah, I believe it. Abel's clearly very skilled. Yeah. And like at various points, like characters refer to him as like a prodigy and things like that. So even though he's like new aboard the ship, he clearly like took his training very seriously and cares about doing this. And he exits the elevator in the hallway. He runs into the fighter of the Tiberius, the Tiberius being the ship that he saved in chapter one. So this is the man whose life he saved. It doesn't state his name yet specifically, I don't believe, but I'll go ahead and just say this man's name is Praxis. And he starts to thank Abel for saving his life, but he then notices the scar that Cain has left on Abel's mouth. And he's disturbed. He goes, you've been partnered with him. Cain, of course, the commanders truly are sadistic. And he then... Surely know that from the name Abel. Fair point. Yeah. I'm <laughs> like, okay. Maybe he maybe, just didn't maybe think about it. Maybe lost that context. Yeah. Or maybe sometimes names just aren't quite as obviously paired together. Maybe people get mixed around. But I've been assuming that like the previous three navigators also had the assigned like task name of Abel that were with Kane. Yeah, that would make sense, but I don't think it's ever specifically stated, so they might or might not have. Um, Praxis is immediately just like, Excuse me, I have duties to attend to because as soon as he has seen the scar. He's just like, I'm sorry, I can't help you, and is leaving. 
Abel shouts, I saved your life. The least you can do is give me some information. But Praxis just continues to walk away, partially due to seeing the scar and also due to there being another fighter who walks by them in the hallway. And we're going to learn this fighter's name is Deimos. Demos, Deimos, I'm not sure, who essentially works as, like, intel gatherer for Kane. Um, is Deimos paired with Phobos? Let me double check. I think so. Um, because if not, he should be, because that's the Greek gods of fear, panic, and terror. That's the other one. Let's see. And the other moons of Mars. Uh, Deimos and Phobos are a pair, yeah. But so... Praxis, by the way, is weirdly not a mythology or literary reference, unlike the others. Um, it's a term that means accepted practice or custom, or practice as distinguished from theory. Yeah. There's also a brewing place called Praxis Brewing fairly near me. Praxis also, um, the book doesn't give specific ages to characters in the DeviantArt interview. A Hamlet machine is just like, oh, Cain and Abel are probably about 22 to 24. Praxis looks a little older. Maybe he's not, and it's just the fact that he's tall, but he's tall. He's got the eye patch. Yeah, he's got the eye patch, so it's giving, like, older, more experienced guy. But he, like, just got the eye patch because his eye got knocked out, which we didn't bring up, but... Ah, uh, yeah, in the um events in of the... the last chapter. Yeah. We then follow Deimos as he makes his way down into what essentially seem like fighter-exclusive areas for, like, the fighters to gather and train and hang out. We see a bunch of guys just sort of, like, hanging out in the broiest of ways, all very just masculine. Let's hang out and have, um, my mind is losing the term now that I need to say it, arm wrestling arm wrestling uh he walks by just a bunch of manly men or he walks by a bunch of manly men doing masculine things and walks in on kane who is using a computer run sort of like physical training program uh interrupts him kane uses a word i don't know how to pronounce this but my Shinnok, a russian word for mouse He's going to continuously refer to Deimos with this term throughout, and Deimos is a very quiet character. He does a lot of, like, nodding and physical gesturing, keeps talking to a minimum, but he tells Kane that he saw Praxis speaking to Abel. As he's doing this, he's also sort of, like, getting up close on Abel as if he's also sexually interested in him but he literally smells him yeah and then whispers in his ear there's little i guess i don't know if sound effect is the right term but there's like little notes saying like inhale and then raspy as he talks yeah and like we get a lot especially like for um abel there's a lot of like points it's about like him being touched or like when he touches things will frequently get a little touch yeah and kane does not reciprocate the sexual interest 
uh, but does say, thanks for the tip, kiddo. Just sort of, you know, uses Deimos, takes advantage of his, like, interest to make him into a lapdog. And we then I mean, he did, like, climb on top of him and start sniffing. It was very strange. Yeah, yeah. Deimos isn't exactly acting normally by any means. (laughs) Not much of anyone in Starfighter acts normally. No, no, they're all messed up. But meanwhile, we get a meeting of navigators because, as you've talked about, this is a very, like, bifurcated military structure. You could almost say segregated. Yeah. And uh, Commander Cook, this is, as I said earlier, not bearing. This is another commander who seems like more in charge of the navigator side of things. Well, he's got white hair, so... Yes. Naturally. He is blonde, just like the rest of them, or almost all of them. We see, I think, literally one black character in the navigator meeting. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's two angles of the same character. Yeah. So it's not literally completely like a racially segregated military structure but it is like heavily so presumably just reflecting just like class aspects of how we've sort of talked about of the clear differences that like hasn't really been spelled out but just like there's clearly a difference in who was able to become like a navigator versus a fighter in this social structure and commander cook starts to deliver a bit of exposition, informs the navigators that, according to their intel, that according to the intel, the Colterans, that being the alien species that they are at war with, the Colterans have begun building something massive in the Baton Kaido system. We believe it to be a deep space shipyard. If completed, the Colterans could construct a fleet that would overwhelm our defense blockade. Alliance Intelligence has consulted Mother. They have advised us to strike before it's too late. This is a vital mission one Commander Baring and I will personally oversee. A battleship from Earth, the Sleepner, will be docking here within the next few hours. Its directive is to proceed into Colteran space and destroy that shipyard. I need volunteers. So two notes on this page. Mother is kind of an alien reference in that, like, there's a boss thing being referred to as Mother. In this case, it looks like it's essentially a three fates reference as well. Like, or the three norns or the three witches in Macbeth. There's three women who seem to be this collective thing called Mother. Yeah, it's very much giving the fates. Um... We'll get to see a bit more of them later on, but for now, it's just sort of like a little drop, a little hint of, like, lore to this world, just, like, in the middle of the conversation. I think it's pretty cool. Oh, and do you know what Sleepnir is? That's a Norse thing, right? Oh, it's it's my favorite Norse thing. It is Odin's eight-legged horse he would ride around on um, that Loki gave birth to. Because Loki turned into a mare and slept with a horse and then gave birth to an eight-legged super horse. Sure sounds like mythology. (laughs) That's fun. Yeah. 
yeah, it's it's um he did it to uh Loki was trying to like trick a giant by like distracting his big horse. So he turned into a sexy mare. Yeah. <laughs> so the giant couldn't use the horse. Uh which helped the gods win a bet, but then he also got pregnant and had a beautiful baby horse of eight legs. My god. Which is adoptive brother in most versions of mythology, not father. Um, which is just feels weird because of all the Marvel. Um, then rides around on all the time. Okay. I also and want oh sorry, go ahead. We see sleep near sorry. One other fun thing is we do see sleep near in the MCU for exactly one shot. So canonically Tom Hiddleston has given birth to an eight legged horse. My god. There's Kenneth Brannon must have known that's what he was doing. There's some archive of our own about that, I bet. Oh, there must be. But yeah, I also want to note um, there's references to Earth and the colonies. So, you know, sci-fi stuff with humanity, like venturing out into space, will vary with like the settings and the timeline of like, oh, are we still on Earth? Have we like migrated beyond it? In this case, in this world, there are still humans on Earth. But there are also, like, settlements on nearby planets like Mars. Um, so, like, the colonies referencing nearby planets that humans have also settled to various degrees. And the Baton Kados, Baton Kados, however you say it, system is referenced. That specifically being a star that is close enough that the human eye can see it without a telescope. So, again, making clear that... Starfighter, you know, we don't get a date of how far in the future it's set, but this is like spacefaring humans who are still like at least early enough in their spacefaring where Earth is still a major concern. And we're like in that relative area of space, which just fervor gives credence to me being like, yep, this is this is near enough in the future that it makes sense and feels appropriate that people are homophobic still. <laughs> but um, able volunteers, the thing being of though, they're having this meeting with the navigators and only telling the navigators. So the fighters are just sort of gonna find out later. Like it's not deemed important enough to tell them at the same time. So any navigators that volunteer are, by default, bringing their partners along with them. And Abel nominates himself, and by extension, Kane. Uh, Commander Cook looks at him, says, You're the Reliance Navigator, aren't you? The one who saved the Tiberius yesterday? Dot, dot, dot. Excellent. And the hater navigators from earlier, we get a panel of them just looking pissed at Abel having gotten recognition again. And meanwhile, Kane is running after Praxis, attacks him in what looks like a cargo bay or something like that, um, reiterates, what did I tell everyone? The one with the scar, don't look at him, don't touch him, and don't fucking talk to him. Praxis just goes, what are you afraid of? The able wanna fighter who isn't a controlling psychopath and... They're just sort of fighting due to Abel's or due to 
Kane's whole territorial possessiveness thing. And when Kane asks, why do you give a shit anyway? Craxus says, he's too good for a... And then a Russian word that's... The translation note is for the G word slur for Romani people. And... Yeah. Yeah. So... So much for Praxis being cool. So much for that. He's also being possessive of Abel, though. Like, he, 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 the implication is also that he just wants to, like, be the one who gets to sleep with Abel. Yeah, yeah, there is an element of that as well. Um, it like, is even if he'd of... be a better partner, he's still, like, partially motivated just because he, like, not just to help Abel out from what he sees is a situation that isn't going to be good for Abel but like out of his own desire for Abel but then also he's a racist piece of shit yeah and I'll go ahead and quote it mostly because it'll be something characters reference later but I'll quote the specific line of Kane going you're too late Praxis I don't normally fuck sluts but he was just begging for it so bad um yeah they just keep fighting they clearly hate each other in this territorial disputes, but when they hear other people coming up close, they have to stop and run off their separate ways. Shortly after that, Abel runs into Kane in the hallway. We get some shots depicting just like Abel having flashbacks to their past couple days together. Um, why is it that when I'm near him, all I can think about is the heat of his body, his weight pressing down on me, his hands holding me. I feel like I'm burning up. And all of this is like naturally over like shots of the two of them having sex. And he's just running through all of these feelings about Kane before um, telling him that I want to do it again right now. And at that point, they go to have sex. Also, on the he ship. bites Kane's lip. Yes, yes. Thank you for noting Which I feel that. Is important. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to mention that you mentioned that. And he's just like, "Let's go fuck. We can fuck on the ship." So they go to the ship, um, in sort of like uh, you know, asserting himself into Kane's territory. Abel sits down on Kane's side of the ship, like in his seat. While Kane is like standing up over him, it's going to be a fellatio thing. And we get this funny sequence of four panels with Kane's dialogue going across three of them before stopping of him going. Well, I'll read the dialogue before it as well, because we get Abel going. I've never done this before. And Kane then goes, you mean you can fly a starfighter, but you don't know how to suck and then it cuts off to, like, the moaning as Abel actually starts sucking. Just, it's good, like, comic book storytelling. Like, obviously, in an audio medium, I can't convey to the listener as good as seeing it. But it's just, like, well-done sequential storytelling. As they continue getting it on, Abel just has more thoughts, more narration, saying, this is reckless. Everything I've seen today has been a warning, and yet I can't stop myself. And there's also some funny having difficulty with the amount of space they've got inside the ship. 
stuff. Yeah, like it's all like very cramped and as opposed to just like perfectly idyllic sex, like there's like actual reckoning with them being like fidgeting around and making room for themselves or making room for themselves, which is a nice touch. And as they're like having actual penetrative sex, Abel is thinking, I need this. If only for a moment, I don't want to think about where I am. I don't want to think about the mission or the Colterans. All I want is this pleasure. As we just get, again, despite his confusion and mixed feelings, Abel enjoying being able to get in touch with himself sexually and have sexual pleasure and just have gay sex which he has never been able to do before meeting Kane. The two both have sort of a nicer, more amused and calm little talk afterward, talking about enjoying themselves and sort of laughing. And it's just sort of like a sign of their relationship slowly beginning to shift a little bit and them having actual enjoyment in each other's presence beyond just literally having sex. But the mood is then quickly dispersed when Abel tells Cain that he has volunteered them for the mission into Colterran space. And Cain is just like, you did what? And that's where chapter two ends of him being pissed. Understandably, because that system is fucked up. Yeah, like literally no agency whatsoever in where he goes. And not even just like, oh, the military commander, you know, my boss chose it, you know, which would be less unusual. It's, oh, my partner was able to do this for both of us without consulting me, which is very fucked up. Um, I guess, do you have any thoughts on anything we didn't touch on in chapter two or about just like any feelings of like how the main character's bond is sort of like shifting as it goes on? Um, again, I just appreciate Abel thinking about and deciding what he wants, and then going and getting it. Yeah. Like, I think his character development's really good. Yeah, I agree. This isn't, like, Void, where one of the characters just has, like, no agency at all. Yeah, I, although <laughs> Void is such a low bar to clear, we, <laughs> we can't keep comparing everything to Void. <laughs> Sure, it's really just a matter of, I've only made you read two gay romances before this, so not a lot of points of reference built up yet. I will say all three of them have had me look at the relationship with at least one raised eyebrow. Yeah. Thanks to the least degree, and I'm now like, is there gonna be one where I'm not going, hmm... Maybe at Your some dynamic point... seems really unhealthy. <laughs> yeah, maybe at some point my tastes are partial to, like, reading stories about people who are fucked up, you know, and yeah. being fucked up, but... But also that's, like, story and conflict. I don't think it's a bad thing. I just think it's funny. Yeah. Maybe because at I, some I point there will be something Because I don't read much romance fluffier. at all, so, like, whenever I do dive into it, I'm frequently just like, oh, wow, you guys, you need some help. And that's like any romance. I mean, I, I'd say the same thing about Kowloon. I'm like, okay, all right, um, counseling. 
I was about to say, yeah, you weren't a fan of the couple in Kowloon either, or not of the idea of being with that man anyway. Yeah, like, because romance subplots in the stuff that I normally read, which is normally things which have a plot based on, like, action and adventure or political intrigue, something like that, they tend to be healthier relationships because you don't have the tension being the primary driver of story, whereas romance stories, I think the relationships generally are messier because the main tension has to be in the relationship. Yeah. But it does mean that since I don't read much of this stuff, every time I go into it, I'm like, oh my god, you people need help. (laughs) And they do. They absolutely do, which is the story, but like, you know. Yeah. Um, Because of how long we've gone on, I'm gonna go ahead and say that we can call it here for today and that I think we can do next week chapters three and four and then we'll do just chapter five on its own as our last week before X-Men month. I think probably will be a good way to pace it. Sounds good. Oh, and um, one one last thing, sorry, on these chapters. The star Baton Kaitos um, yeah. is an actual star, so excellent research. Yeah, it is. But beyond that, I forgot to mention earlier, Baton Kaitos... It sure is. It sure is. I had to add star. I'm just like, okay. And given that Hamlet Machine is a nerd, and I mean that in a good way, it wouldn't surprise me if she heard of the star because of the game. Because I thought of the game when I saw that ward, that phrase in the comic, I thought of the game not knowing it was a real star. Also, the star seems to normally be referred to as Zeta Seti, or it's a binary star system, so it's both. Yeah, but Zeta Zeta Seti is the the like what you call the binary system, and Baton Kainos is the main star in that binary star system. Okay, so the, the video game name was definitely chosen for a reason because otherwise you would call the system Zeta Seti. Yeah, but yeah, that about does us for this week i i think from talking to you today my impression is that you liked more of this than i thought that you did from just texting you before yeah yeah i mean you know most of my notes are just like yeah this is yeah i'm intrigued into what's going on with the commander guy bearing and whatever's happening with like that plot to do with babel I do and... think that the plot is going to just pick up and have more forward momentum going forward, too. I think the first two chapters are the slowest in terms of plot as they just, like, establish the main pair. Yeah. Well, you have to. Yeah. But with all that said, um, next week's reading will be Starfighter chapters three and four. So thank you all for listening and bye. Bye. Excellent to each other.